one side or the other. Uh, that is, the Bible makes it clear that it's important, actually loving, to discipline your child. Uh, but it's possible, and it happens, that a parent can become harsh and unloving in their discipline and is, in fact, in fact, an expression of their sin. Now, that's one side of the horse that a parent can fall off. The other side is to err on the side of loving. Now, you might wonder how on earth that could be wrong. Uh, but if a person just tries to uh, please their child because they uh, want them to love them and have a good relationship with them, if they're afraid of disciplining them because they want their child to like them, well, it will most always backfire. To love a child well, it must include appropriate discipline. It's actually unloving for a child not to learn right and wrong from a loving and gracious parent. But as I was preparing this passage for today, it reminded me that it's also possible to fall off both sides of your Christian life, both sides of the Christian horse, if you like. Uh, knowing God's salvation and living the Christian life is expressed in both faith and obedience, uh, or as the, our passage today expresses it, in both hearing and doing. It's not one or the other, but both. And when I was a young Christian, I knew that I was saved by putting my faith, my trust in Jesus and all that he had done for me. Uh, but I also knew that being a follower of Jesus meant obeying his good word. My problem that was that my ongoing struggles with sin made me feel as though my faith may not be genuine. I felt my lack of obedience called my whole salvation into question. I was fearful that I might not be accepted into God's kingdom. After all, that if I died, I might not be accepted into heaven. But I've known people who uh, have had the opposite problem. That is, they know the Bible teaches that we are saved only by faith and that there is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. That is completely true. That is what the Bible teaches. But I've sometimes met people who are not concerned about sin in their lives because they trust Jesus and he has died for their sins. And so they feel no need for obedience to God or, or even to live especially for Jesus. They've got their, if you like, their get-out-of-jail-free card. They see salvation as a free pass that doesn't necessarily require anything of them. Both have fallen, if you like, off a different side of the Christian horse, so to speak. The problem is that both ways of thinking are focused on self and not actually on Jesus. Uh, one thinks that their behaviour is what saves them and the other thinks that their faith saves them. That is, that they are trusting in their faith, not trusting in Jesus, their saviour. And the problem is that both have taken their eyes off God himself and the great salvation that comes only through Jesus... God's great salvation is, in fact, the overarching theme of chapters 7 to 8 of Luke. Uh, and just as chapter 7 last week opened up with a group of miracles that demonstrate and prove that it's all about what God has done to save us in Jesus, so chapter 8 concludes with a group of miracles that do the same thing. And then in both chapters, Luke focuses on our response to Jesus. We have to understand what is the right response to the salvation that Jesus brings. And so today I'm, I'm going to finish with the response Jesus calls for in the first half of chapter 8, uh, and I'm going to start at the second half of chapter 8, which we haven't actually read yet, uh, where both fear and faith accompany the miracles of Jesus. 
Now, Luke, in the last part of chapter 8, Luke records for us four events that have happened, uh, one after the other, it seems, in the same time period. And we're just going to pick it up at verse 22. So while we haven't read it, it's good to have it open now so we can see what it says. So verse 22. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Here is a moment when the chaos chaos of nature is on display. Uh, A huge storm has come up, and they're in great danger. Uh, We've got to remember that some of these guys that are in the boat with Jesus were professional fishermen. Uh, They know their way around a boat on stormy waters, but they're afraid for their lives. And perhaps we're getting a bit of a a glimpse, I think, even here at the sheer exhaustion that Jesus experiences in his ministry, given that he can sleep in the midst of this. And so they come and say, wake up, we're going to drown. And in verse 24, we see this one man, Jesus, in front of the fury of nature, speak to the winds and the waves and everything goes quiet. It's actually what the psalmist said he would do in the passage that we read first from Psalm 107, verse 29. You can see it there on the screen. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. The elements that Jesus had brought into being at creation recognise his voice. Jesus brings order out of chaos. And he asks his disciples a question here in verse 25. Notice what he says. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? I mean, their response to Jesus is fear and amazement and surely that would be perhaps what we would do, wouldn't it? But Jesus asks them, where is your faith? It's not that every time something goes wrong, people with faith in Jesus will have a happy ending. We know that's not true, don't we? Storms do kill people. Accidents happen. Good people die. The question they ask is, who is this? The the faith that the disciples should have had is faith in Jesus. Because if he is the promised saviour and king of God's kingdom, sent by almighty God, then it's ridiculous to think that an unexpected storm could kill him and those with him. Their fear betrays a less than faithful grasp of who Jesus really is. But when they make it to land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, things don't get any easier. They're confronted by a demon-possessed man in verses 26 to 39. Uh, This man lived among the graves, tormented, isolated, double personality, suicidal. We're likely to call them psychiatric cases. But this is a man who is a victim of Satan. Now, you may not have seen a person demon-possessed, but there are places where people live in fear of the demonic world. And here, Jesus confronts this great darkness because this man isn't possessed by a demon, but by a host of demons. See verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, 
What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And then down to verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. The demons recognise Jesus, but they have no control over him. See what they say in verse 28? I beg you. That is, you beg from people who have authority over you. Now, the demons beg Jesus to let them go into the pigs. And here we're actually seeing that Satan himself recognises Jesus' authority over him. Here these demons of destruction destroy a whole herd of pigs, but against Jesus, they were nothing. And notice how the people of the region respond in verse 37. With great fear. And they asked him to leave. Jesus, please go. This demon-possessed man was a hopeless case. But look at the contrast after coming into contact with Jesus there in verse 35. They found him sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And he wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus tells him to go and tell what God has done. Well, the next encounter that Luke records is with disease. A tragic case of a woman bleeding for 12 years. Even the doctors had given up on her. The same thing happens, doesn't it, in our hospitals every day. Doctors declare certain patients beyond help, beyond cure. They give up treatment. There are times when we are helpless against disease. But it's into this world that Jesus comes. And Luke tells us that crowds were pressing around Jesus. And we read in verse 44 and following, She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And no one could heal her, but as she reaches out and touches Jesus, he knows that power has left him. Uh, and this hopeless cause is mightily healed. And notice that Jesus won't allow himself to be seen as some anonymous power here. That is, he wants her to reveal herself, not because he doesn't know who it is, but because he's looking for personal relationship and total commitment from those who would follow him. And, and like the others, the, the woman is afraid when she comes before Jesus. But he repeats the phrase that he used to the sinful woman in chapter 7 last week, if you were here. Your faith has made you well. Or literally, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, this uh, final episode in Luke 8 is the most hopeless case of all. Uh, Jesus has been on his way to Jairus' house. Jairus is a synagogue ruler uh, where his 12-year-old daughter is, is dying. Uh, but now he's told it's too late. She's already dead. There's nothing, no longer any need for Jesus to come. It's too late. Nothing can be done. And we'll all face death, won't we? And death will always win. But look at Jesus' response in verse 50. 
But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. See, Jesus is undeterred by the report of her death, and he arrives at Jairus' house. And the people are, are weeping and mourning, and Jesus says something outrageous in verse 52. Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. I mean, these, these mourners at Jairus' house are likely professional mourners, which was the regular practice. They were paid to mourn. They'd seen dead bodies before. They were sure she was dead. And so they laughed at Jesus' statement. You see, verse 54, Jesus takes just a few in with him and taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And can you imagine being there? My little child, get up. We find that hard to imagine, don't we? But there is only one person who the camera is on here. Luke is focusing us on Jesus. The king has come. He is the Lord of everything. Every miracle is there to give us a glimpse of what is to come. This is what heaven is like. No more demons, no death, no disease. Yes, we await Jesus' return when Jesus comes again and fully brings in his kingdom. That is what we await. But here he has given us a glimpse. And Luke is saying, can you see who this man is? He's God's king of his eternal kingdom. That's the thing about a king, isn't it? You don't elect him. I mean, you can reject and you can oppose him, but he remains. This man, Jesus, is too strong. He is king whether you like it or not, which is why both Luke and Jesus himself want us to take care how we respond to Jesus. And so to this end, Jesus tells a parable right back at the beginning of the chapter what we read before. Uh, It's a very well-known parable if you've been a Christian for a while. The parable of the sower is told in verses 4 to 8, and then Jesus explains it to his disciples in verses 9 through to 15. I mean, a parable, if you know what a parable, it's it's kind of like a hook. Uh, It gets you in, but so often it just kind of stays at that level of a nice story. But others will be drawn in to ask the meaning of the parable, and that's exactly what God wants of us. This parable is about how we hear the word of God. And the key there is verse 8. Notice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the parable itself is about a farmer who sows his seed, uh, but it falls on four different types of soil. And each soil represents how people hear God's word and respond to it. Now on the back of your outline there, it may be a little bit misleading the way I've said, um, you know, different kinds of faiths, because there is only one true faith. And that is the one that we'll see at the end in the fourth soil, but uh, we'll get to that. For now, the first soil represents those who express no faith, no belief in God's word. Uh, Look at verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, whenever the gospel is being announced... The devil is present. His aim is to take away the word from our hearts. I heard someone say once that the devil is the most regular attender at church. 
That is, Satan is messing with us from the moment we begin hearing the word of God. And he only has one motive. He wants you to suffer with him in a Christless, a godless eternity. It's why he's called the evil one. Now, you, you perhaps may be one who stands over the word of God instead of sitting under it. Maybe you're listening more to critique than to hear and respond. And therefore, you pick holes in the preacher and your heart becomes harder to God's word. Just remember, the devil hates us. He does not want us to hear God's word rightly and respond to it rightly. Well, the second soil, the rocky soil, represents a shallow faith that doesn't go the distance. Look at verse 13. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. Now, this person has heard the word, they've heard the gospel of Jesus, and in some way they've received it. But only for a while. Because in a time of testing, they walk away. It's not easy being a Christian, is it? Christians were once considered a blessing to society. But now they're considered a danger to our society. To some, our views are abusive and we need to be silenced. Our school children who own their Christianity at school are often mocked and abused. So how incredibly encouraging is it then to see so many of our young people standing up for Christ amongst their peers? And many of you have shared the difficulties that you have faced in your workplaces because of your faith in Jesus. Or perhaps you're suffering in other ways that make you question whether Jesus is actually in your corner or not. See, Jesus doesn't promise us an easy life any more than he had an easy life. But he does ask us to trust him and to persevere when things are hard because the kingdom of God belongs to those who don't shrink back. Well, the third soil represents a, uh, what we might call a distracted faith that also doesn't hold fast to the gospel. Uh, verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Now, this is, if I can say, a graphic image of a conflicted faith. And it's interesting, isn't it, that nothing has actually changed since Jesus' day. The dangers to us of living fruitful Christian lives is that the gospel we received is choked by cares, by riches, by pleasures. The concerns of this world are a concern for our Christian lives. And sometimes it's death by a thousand compromises that dilute Jesus' lordship in our lives. Our world is ruled, I think, by a, a rampant selfishness and self-indulgence. Our culture tells people that they should live for themselves and pursue what makes them happy no matter what others think. But it's not working. We've never had a generation with so much anxiety and depression. And can I say, I'm not referring to the genuine illnesses that people have that they need rightful care for but I am referring to a self-centred indulgence that leaves people disillusioned. We're breeding a society of full-time consumers. But Jesus says that the only antidote to greed is generosity. 
So many have sacrificed their faith on the altar of greed. Be very careful because these kind of things can choke you out, Jesus says. Well, the final uh, soil represents the right response to Jesus, uh, the right response that he wants from those who hear his word. Uh, This is the faith that saves. Look at verse 15. He says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. You see, here is a heart that receives and retains the word of God. Uh, Here's the the key to a a sure and certain salvation and to a fruitful Christian life. Uh, Three types of soil give entry to the seed, but their response isn't good. They've responded wrongly to the word of God. Have you heard God's word and responded rightly to it? Are you hearing God's word? Are you holding it fast in a good heart? And is your life patiently bearing fruit? And the way we bear fruit is as we live out the implications of the gospel in our lives and as we speak the gospel to others. Luke gives us some great examples, I think, of people whose lives had been transformed by the forgiveness of their sins. We saw it last week and we see it again here in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 8. Uh, He records a group of women and men supporting Jesus and the apostles out of their personal means as they travelled around proclaiming the gospel. And then the the healed demoniac is told by Jesus over in verse 39, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. See, how should you live to make it obvious that you are a person of God's kingdom. I know about a lady who got saved by what they described as the ministry of the tea towel. Uh, Her son would never lift a finger to help around their house. Um, He always complained and failed to do the chores that were set for him and it had become quite a source of contention and difficulty around the home. Uh, And then one day, seemingly out of the blue, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he got up and helped do the dishes without being asked. Three days in a row, and after three days of complete shock, uh, his mum had to ask him what was wrong. And he said to her that his friend had invited him to go to church with him on Sunday night. He'd heard about all that Jesus had done for him, and that he had died to forgive him of his sins and to give him new life. And he said, I knew then that I needed to become a Christian. And I realised that things needed to change around here if I was really going to follow him. And that simple testimony had such an impact upon his mother that she went along and heard the gospel too. See, Luke wants us to know that the king has come. He wants us to know that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ, who forgives our sins and transforms our lives. See, here is both the warning and the promise of these two chapters, of chapters 7 and 8. See, Jesus warns his hearers in verse 18. See what he says? Take care then how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. See, notice that God holds us accountable for how we hear and respond to his word. It's a significant thing to come under the ministry of the Bible. 
even as we come under the ministry of God's word today, beware of the danger of hearing the word but of not allowing it to sink in and change you. Particularly if you've heard it many times before. You may be in the greatest danger. The parable of the sower is about how we hear the word of God that proclaims Jesus as Lord. And the warning is to take care then how you hear. But along with that serious warning is a a wonderful promise. A promise of being welcomed into the family of God for all those who hear the word of God and do it. See verses 19 and 21? Jesus' family are looking for him and, and wanting his attention, but Jesus speaks to the crowds hearing him teach about the kingdom of God. And look at what he says in verse 20. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. For anyone who is willing both to hear and to do God's word about Jesus. He welcomes us in as part of his eternal family. Peace with God. Transformed lives. We only find true joy, true forgiveness, true purpose as we are welcomed welcomed into this family. And so hear what Jesus tells us we must do. See there on the screen? Hear the word. When we hear the word, we, we repent. That is, we turn back to God and ask for forgiveness for our sins because all have sinned and fall short of God's glory and we are given salvation as a free gift. And then hold that, hold it fast. Persevere in our faith in Jesus. Keep trusting in him no matter what happens in life. And bear fruit. Be obedient to God's word. Let it shape the way you think and live your life. So when we hear God's word, it's both information and transformation. It's both challenge and change. It's both hearing and adhering. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are a good and loving and generous God who loves us so much that you would send your own son into the world to be our saviour. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for transformed lives. Continue to let your word do its work in us to change us that we might be your people in obedience and in faith. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.